0: Um, you've all uh, taken me back a little bit, and I, 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 I love, I love the memory, the walk of memory. And of course, anytime I'm with Jeremy, I have to go down memory lane too, because we served together down, as he mentioned, in L.A., um, Santa Clarita, Burbank, and, um, and so you took me down memory lane with the last song we just sang, by Andre Crouch. Right? I don't know if you will notice that on your song sheet. Um, I've got stories about Andre Crouch and weddings that I won't tell today. But in any case, in 1973, I was like a sophomore in high school when this song was was uh, was written. I and I from from that point on, you know, we sang it. It was very popular. It was popular when I went to Burbank um, in 1991, and in fact, um, it, it'll always have a very special place in my own memory because because the day that I got voted in to become the new pastor of that church, Emmanuel Church in Burbank. Um, was a wonderful high point for my life. It was amazing and it was thrilling and it was like when we announced that we accepted the call and all of that kind of thing there was like, it was like a super Bowl environment. It was incredibly encouraging um don 't ask me about what happened in the next year and a half because that was humbling okay just so you know um, but but when, but after we announced after we announced the uh, the fact that we 'd be Judy and I with our three kids would be moving there um, the church chairman got behind the mic and, and, and in fact started just talking about the privilege of getting to know us in the process and all of that kind of thing. And at some point in his uh, introduction and thanksgiving to God, he, he was just saying, so, so Neil is just going to prove to be a great pastor and I just want to bless his holy name. Are you, are you tracking with me here on that? Okay, so it was like the most blasphemous thing that had ever been said about me. And um, very frightening, and I needed to be humbled after that, and so it was just a very interesting kind of a, kind of a moment. But, but that brings back tons of memories, and so I'm just grateful that, that I can be here with you now. So, so I think I've mentioned it before, but, but we, are, um, we are in the, uh, the Western District and have um, 55 churches, uh, of which, which makes up your family of churches, so you are not alone. And, and that's a beautiful thing because we don't want to be alone these days at all. And my, my hope of course is to be the safest set of ears that a pastor could ever need as I minister and serve around the district with all of these churches and with all these pastors. And these are very fascinating days to be doing that in. And so my, my hope is that you'll continue to pray for us as we, as we kind of try to just be present and available and connected to people and genuine relationship that's really our desire it's how we're living our life so Jeremy referenced our life in San Francisco as well and that's how we're living life I think that's the gospel I think when people can see the gospel lived out in real life normal life friendship life relational life with all kinds of people especially in this day when it's so hard to cross boundaries and build bridges and that sort of thing that the power of the gospel is even more and more obvious every day for those of us that would choose to actually embody it and live it. Jesus is the light of the world. Amen? Amen. But when he left, what did he say about transferring that light stature hmm. to us? We're the light of the world now. Great. I mean, I, that's that's a hard thing to even come to terms with. But what does it mean for us to be the light of the world here in these days? So in any case, that's that's my longing, is to make sure that you know before this day is over with that it's your turn. We're in John chapter 20, and Jesus, in essence, said so much, that it's your turn. Um, and so take your turn here in the world, here now, right in this environment, in a totally unexpected, unexpected place. So anyway, it's, it's always good to come back and be with you, and there's so many reasons for us to rejoice in these days, I think. I know that's not what we think of necessarily right off the bat. Like maybe we're not rejoicing as much as at other times of our lives, but it would seem to many of us that um, all of our problems perhaps outpace and distract and maybe even suck the life right out of everything in these days. And maybe you're feeling that way. I don't know if you are or not. So many of us are feeling exhausted. And I am, I'll confess it. And there's so many reasons for discouragement and confusion and anger and frustration and suspicion and fear and polarization and so we're living in that kind of an environment in many ways it's it's both life as usual right and it is what was to be expected for true followers of jesus in history probably and forever for that matter and so we probably shouldn't be quite so surprised by it but still it isn't easy to live this way Now, I contend that peace in our inner spirit and as a constant characteristic of our daily life is actually a matter of a firm grip on the simplest portion of our identity in Christ. And if we have that firm grasp, nothing needs to faze us. And that's what I want to talk about today. Um, I would also like to claim that we've had our true identity stripped from us, And maybe we have misunderstandings about who we actually are in Christ. And so we've been disempowered rather than empowered with good intentions, I think. Some of our efforts at true discipleship and faithfulness to God's written word and the sustainability of what we have come to call the church has resulted in our our lack of preparation actually for days like these. And so today I wanna pull us back to the empowering words of Jesus for days like these, right? Um, it'll be clear and simple and straightforward. It doesn't have to take me an awful lot of time to say this thing, but what but, but I want to make clear is that this isn't me bearing bad news. I'm not pessimistic by nature, but I, I do seem to have an eye for the realistic, as I've lived as many years as I have now. And we're just nine days away from an election, and uh, it, it bears the potential to alter life as we know it. And I think a lot of people have said that in a lot of different kinds of ways, coming from all kinds of different perspectives. I'm of the opinion that it doesn't really matter who wins the office of the President of the United States, or now whether or not a Supreme Court justice gets affirmed this week or not. Either will result, either of those results will launch us, I think, into a series of reactions that will be at least chaotic, probably violent. And we now live in a cultural, political context, I think, that's defined by the classic battle, right? That's what it's been made into, the classic battle between good and evil. And we hear it all the time from sources we didn't used to hear, it. those used to be our words. And now we're hearing it from all sides and, 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 and everywhere, and people of faith and people without faith and so forth. So what one side calls good, the other side calls evil. Interestingly, what one side believes is evil, the other side clings to as the very essence of what they believe to be good. And we're so confused by that. And maybe some of us are, maybe some of us aren't. It's difficult to imagine a relational minefield more difficult to traverse than the one we're in today. And I say that after living for 63 years. So will you have your way, your desired outcome, your preferred future? I'm here to say no matter what happens, that's not likely. Right? There, there really is only one basic lesson to be learned, I think, in this season when nearly every word out of every mouth is at least tainted for some manipulative purpose. Because that's what politics has become. If not an outright lie, then when the background and behavior and values and vocabulary and character and motives of candidates for our highest and most trusted and powerful office is displayed in such embarrassing and deceitful relief There's one lesson for us to learn, and it's the lesson the Bible's always preached, and it's why God didn't want to give the people of Israel a king. Right? Here's the lesson. It is foolish to put our trust in the strength of men and horses. Mm -hmm. Human governments cannot be relied upon. And if we look to them for our hope, we will be disappointed. I look to the mountains. Where does my hope come from? My hope comes from the Lord only always ever so let me get a little bit more practical in terms of how we then do that since we i think share that belief and we have a time in which it's pointed out to us daily momentarily all the time so we are are pointing now then to our core beliefs right the foundation of our faith the risen king of kings whom we serve is orchestrating all for his purposes of life and peace We're in an intermediate moment when we're not seeing a lot of life and peace, right? Doesn't feel like it at least, but in fact that is exactly what's taking place because he is in charge, he is the king, he's enthroned. We seem to be left with only chaos, but are we not therefore left with only one option? With Peter we agree, where else can we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And and so this is a great moment for us to be to, to have our perspective reset, to have our focus reset, to cause us to experience this season of, 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 of desperation. Is that a word? Is that, is that a fair word for it? I think maybe it is. And so we could turn in desperation to our sovereign, merciful, risen and reigning high King of heaven and beg for mercy. Is that not a beautiful posture? Amen. That's discipleship. That's what it means to be His to be people of faith who live by faith and not by sight. Of course, that that, that disposition of, of desperation has always been our place. Our dependence and our surrender to the only wise king situates us for anything. We can face virtually anything. We are first and foremost worshipers. We revere the all-powerful creator and sustainer, and judge, and that covers the past all the way into the unknown future, we're good. Because he's good. So we've just uh, been, been tricked a bit by a brief blip on the vast spectrum of human life, I think, human history, we've come to expect and to be entitled to and to demand the rights of a period of political luxury. Is that a fair description? Religious freedom and protections, perhaps, have softened us. That we should have circumstantial peace, that we deserve prosperity, that that all has ill-prepared us, hasn't it? Many, many of our forebears had nothing of the sort, of course. Many, many of our brothers and sisters in Christ right now, as we're right here gathered in this wonderful moment in time, peaceful, joyful, singing, reassured worshiping right at rest in so many ways but our brothers and sisters in christ right now throughout the world have hunger and suffering and persecution because of their faith in christ right now and they look forward to it every hour of every single day and there's no reason we should expect not to have that be a part of our life at some point who knows it's not like we deserve something more than they do so life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness may be a declaration of our political independence, and it's a good one, it's a good thing to form a government around that. It's written on parchment and everything, right? But there is no guarantee of it, not from God, not from the creator, the sustainer of all. The true power, I think, for the believer in the risen Christ is that we, whether we have those freedoms or not, we are free. Amen. That's good news. We are free. Whether or not the person we prefer is elected President of the United States, our King reigns on high and we are free. So what is our identity and how does knowing our identity equip us to face what is coming in just days and life as it goes on into this future? We're in John 20 and I'm going to begin reading at verse 20 um, and read through and kind of make comments as I go. The core identity is in a little four-letter word right here in our text in John chapter 20, and it is the word sent. We are sent. We are sent ones. Now before I begin reading our way through these 12 verses, um, I want to I simply state a definition that will offer you a transformational identity that Jesus has in fact given to us, and that is wrapped up in a word that you've heard. It's a religious word. It's kind of a sanctified word. It's the word apostleship. Apostles. Right, It's listed in another place in scripture, but the root of that word is this, sent one. An apostle is a sent one, and I'm here to tell you that you're all apostles. Anyone with faith in the risen Jesus Christ is an apostle, a sent one, and that's your identity. It's in verse 21. We're going to discover the title of apostle. The title of apostle is further from the thoughts of Jesus in this context, and that his use of the word is more verb than noun, Right? more a description of your and my spiritual design, way less than a proper noun, not a title, okay, not an authoritative position. A disciple, you see, is a student, right? A follower, one who surrenders to his or her teacher. That's a disciple. An apostle is a disciple having learned has been sent on mission. And that's us. But learned... Just the basics is what I'd like to say. If you've had a genuine faith encounter with the risen Jesus Christ and his grace, then you are fully prepared to be sent and tell your story. Right? It's a beautiful thing. So an apostle a the disciple, having learned, has been sent on mission. He's a sent one. She is a, a one sent into that place where, I'd like to say, you already are. You don't have to go anywhere. You're already there. You are right where God wants you today. A sent one right there. And so, who is it? Who is it among whom you've been sent with this incredible, hopeful message of the gospel of Jesus Christ? So, our only question is whether we believe the Bible is conveying any kind of a hierarchical distinction so as to strip this identity away from us, right? So, we have, of course, we have apostles and we have disciples, and then they're kind of, you know, relegated, and then we have. You know, down here on the JV level, we've got just believers or or maybe normal Christians down here on the, on the C team. You know, we've got back, we just leave them in the locker room, we've got these normal church attenders. We find none of that in Scripture, of course, right? And yet there's a cultural reality of that, an institutional, even denominational reality of some of that. We talked about ordination and credentialing. That does it to us. It causes us to think there's varsity and JV. There's those really qualified and those that... You know, just kind of show up and, you know, give your money. and but, but, but leave the heavy lifting to us. We're the pros. Now, I'm a denominational employee, so I get to say these things out loud. And I push back on us all the time, even in our own denomination. And so we need to be very careful because I'm here to tell you today that now it's our turn. All of us, it's our turn to be the light and life of the hope of Jesus Christ in a world that sure looks to me like it's needed it as much as ever, at the very least. So we're in verse 20, in John chapter 20, if you're following along. When he had said this, he being Jesus, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Please, don't just skip over that. Can you imagine being there for this this moment? They've been in desperate straits, fearful, frightened, all of their hopes dashes, and Jesus shows up in the room in body, and shows him his scars. Would you not have loved to have been there in that moment? Oh! Wow! Because it was no longer a by faith thing. They got to see with their own eyes. Wow! Incredible moment in time. And so then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord, right? Of course they were. (laughs) That's an understatement. And then verse 21, look, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you which I love because we can be at all times, no matter what the circumstances, even theirs then, which I would argue might have been worse than ours now, by the way, he said, you can have peace. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent, there's the word, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending, there's the word again, I am sending you. Did you know you were in the Bible? That you personally, individually, as a faithful follower and believer in the risen Jesus Christ are in there. There's you. There you are. Right there. And we're sent right into the deep weeds of the world in which we currently live, just as every believing sent one has always been sent into theirs. So according to John's testimony here, notice in his gospel that we, all of us, are sent ones, not just people in the room whose name is Cook, if I can pick on Jeremy for a minute. Jesus has sent us into the world to do his gracious, transformational kingdom work. So let's not be distracted by lots of other kinds of work. Instead, let's rest in the fact that we have been indwelt and we've been empowered by the Holy Spirit of God and serve up the life-giving gospel of Jesus Christ as a way of life. Even in a time like this. Maybe especially in a time like the one in which we now live. So there's a huge lesson in COVID-19 season for us right now, right? To do this work of being sent... Wait, what? We're being divided. We're being isolated. We're being locked up. How, how do you be sent in that circumstance, right? And we, might, we might think we're limited. Our God is not limited. So, so, so here's this lesson. We don't need special buildings or special days of the week or special services for larger groups of people. We enjoy them. We make it part of our way of life. They nurture us. They build us. We're prepared for it. We can come together to celebrate the past week and to be prepared and equipped for the next week. But it turns out the church is bigger and stronger and deeper than that. And we needed this to discover it. Don't let anybody rob you of that revelation. We are the church in living color. It's a beautiful thing. Let's just imagine for a moment that all of that was taken away from us all of the ability and the freedom to meet, right? <laughs> like the rug under our feet being yanked out, right? I mean, come on, no, nah, that, that could never happen. That's what we might have thought several months ago, and then it happened. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And yet, this formerly unthinkable occurrence is in form our, re- our reality. Currently, you guys are getting ready to move in next week, but I keep hearing there's a third wave coming, and who knows? And maybe election results will have an impact on that. Who knows? What we know now is that it doesn't really matter because the gospel is furthered because Jesus is king. And that's all we need to know. And we are the ones that he's choosing to use in this incredible season. We used to have these dependencies on things, and we no longer do because we've learned from this season. And I hope we are. His people and his work are too real, too large, too deep, and too unrestricted to be limited by any of these things. And if we miss that, then we will have missed God's purpose, I think, at least part of it, for this season of our life. So Jesus is sent by the Father in his time for all the, all of time, so now Jesus has sent us into this cauldron of swirling danger and confusion that we're living in today with the words of eternal life. And so I'm enamored with John's insertion of the very next words in verse 22, look at it. And when he had said this, that is that you've been sent, I send you like I was sent. He breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And of course, there's the power, the indwelling, the assurance, the absolute giftedness and the fruitfulness right right there. The Holy Spirit, if the Holy Spirit is not in us, then we cannot take the truth, go with the truth, deliver the truth, much less can any truth be engaged with other people except by the power and the wisdom and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And so there's that. I, 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 I want you to receive the Holy Spirit, Jesus says. Verse 23 now, look at this. The very next sentence out of his mouth is fascinating to me. And it almost feels like, wait, what? That, should that have followed just now? But here it is. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. Wow. Of course, it goes on to say, if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. But I don't think that phrase is why Jesus is teaching us this. I think that he's speaking to us about the power of forgiveness, the core message of forgiveness in the gospel. The idea that before the foundation of the world, God said, I will send my son to forgive and to make forgiveness possible by satisfying my wrath and to make forgiveness possible by, by, by fulfilling the demands of justice in my son who died and that then we too, because we died with him by faith, now justice has been served, and we are here to be those having been forgiven, now we are enabled then to forgive the sins of any. That's power. That's purpose. That's focus. That a spirit of forgiveness will be a mark of the sent ones of God is fascinating to me, especially in this day that we're living in. Seriously, what if we had a forgiving spirit? What if we had a forgiving impulse as our first reaction to people who in these days are making our blood boil or scaring us to death or setting themselves up as our enemy? What if forgiveness was our first impulse and not one later? And it's our calling, as those who have been sent by the sent one. So as we've been forgiven much, let forgiveness become our reputation in this community. So, Pastor Jeremy, I'm gonna say this in good humor, but in some reality too, you have been forgiven much. And you're gonna to need to forgive him a whole bunch more as the years go by. A whole lot more, brother. It's just gonna keep rolling out, right? And, and, and I can say that because I wanna include myself under that umbrella too. I have been forgiven so much, way more than Jeremy has been forgiven of, I've been forgiven, okay? just so we're all clear on that, just by virtue of how much older I am than you. So this this forgiveness, this, 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 this freedom, this beauty of being able to forgive much really comes out of our constant awareness that we have been forgiven for so much in our lives, and it's a joy and a privilege. It's humbling. It's mercy. Boy, we need mercy today. Why we need forgiveness of one another today to build a bridge to each other, no matter what your your beliefs might be. so in fact, I happen to be in a unique season kind of a family related heartache kind of scenario in all honesty, it now occurs to me that it's not all that unique because maybe life is supposed to be hard every day marked by the need to receive forgiveness and to give forgiveness. The bottom line is that Jesus' words here are not offered in a spirit of unforgiveness to withhold forgiveness from people, but in fact to live and walk in the way of Jesus, is to live and walk in the way of forgiveness. And I want to invite you to consider what it might mean for your first reaction, your first impulse, that which comes out of the heart, and therefore out of your mouth, is forgiveness first. And see how that alters the way that you relate, the way that you perceive, the way you watch TV, the way that you listen to news, the way that you deal with people who are different than you. Okay, That's my invitation to you. Each of us is sent by the sent one to review. It turns out our need for forgiveness has qualified us. (laughs) Our need for forgiveness has actually qualified us to be witnesses of the grace of God to our friends. Our failings and the way grace met us there is the message our friends need to know. Because we've been communicating a different message than that. Clean it up. Be perfect. Pretend you're perfect so as not to be a bad witness, we've said for decades but haven't been forgiven much, now we're equipped to take our turn living out the gospel. So today, with, with today's outright hatred, there's never been a time when forgiveness as a life posture is more needed. I invite you to it, it is to be like Jesus. We will stand out as uniquely loving, hopeful, strong, and life-giving. Not when we stand against the rushing tide of godless, godlessness in the world, godless deeds, godless policies, godless beliefs, no. But when we stand in and stand beside people who've never once guessed that Jesus loves them in this kind of forgiving spirit. Never came across their radar. So it's our turn. It's our turn to be forgiving. And how can we do otherwise? So let's not think too highly of ourselves or take ourselves too seriously, right? But let's not either ignore those upon whose shoulders we are standing as we take our turn but also let's not underestimate how powerful it is to take our turn having been filled with the Holy Spirit it's just our turn I want to take the pressure off but I want to invite you to remember it's your turn if you don't take your turn who's going to take it we got each one take our turn and it is characterized by forgiveness more than maybe any other thing so now we're at verse 24 because watch even the frail get to take a turn Okay, verse 24, now Thomas. How many of you have heard of Thomas, right? How many of you know of Thomas's reputation? I think it's an over the generations reputation about Thomas, but he gets a bad rap, right? But Thomas, here he is, Thomas, um, Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord! But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe... There's a man of integrity, actually, of honesty, right? A man who's, who understands and is willing to say out loud and be transparent about what he's dealing with. I admire Thomas, to be honest. He gets a bad rap, but I'm among those who believe that his honesty puts on display humble faith. Mm-hmm. It is not a bad thing that Thomas doubted. It's a good thing in that it reveals his respect for truth, his respect for assurance, and for the integrity of his own heart. Each of our faith is the stronger for our honesty in our own process and the seasons that our belief tracks through. It it reminds me of the man in Mark, right? Chapter 9, verse 24. I love this moment who who Mark told us about there. He longed for Jesus to touch his son and heal him, right? Remember this guy? And Jesus said to him, yeah, I, I can heal him if you will believe that I can. Remember that? Oh, what a moment, right? And this guy's response is like a life verse for me. I... I do believe. Lord, help me in my unbelief. Okay, that's that's where life is lived. That's every one of us if we've got the courage to admit it. Are you kidding me? That's faith, not sight. That Faith requires doubt, assumes doubt. There's going to be doubt or it wouldn't be faith. Of course, Jesus and Paul and other places taught us that more thoroughly. It's all very, very true, but this is life. And this is what the people out there in the world who are, in fact, perishing need to hear from us. that We're struggling right along with them on this journey of faith. I didn't see it. I can't believe it. I just don't know. I mean, really? It's a life of humility. Now we catch up with Thomas in verse 26. Look, eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them this time. Ah, although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you, like he always did reminding us that peace is always our possession. It's another part of our identity. Peace be with you. And then verse 27, he said to Thomas, he turns to Thomas, right? In the crowded room, he turns to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hand. Put out your hand and place it into my side. The hole is still there. Now, this says an awful lot theologically, right? Very deep stuff about the person of Christ and the life, and the death, and the burial, the resurrection, the appearing to the disciples, the ascension, the enthronement, the commission that he's given to us. It says so much about all of that, just that he was there bodily with all of these wounds and scars, and yet translated into a a new body, right there, in front of Thomas, that could just appear in the room, right? There's so much here, right? But I don't want you to miss the human element of this. He says to him, Thomas, Do not disbelieve, but believe. And what would your reaction be? You think Thomas put his finger in the hand? Or his hand in the side? He didn't need to, did he? He just like fell on the ground. He fell on his face. Oh, my Lord and my God, yeah! I believe. Now, Jesus' response is fascinating because here we go again. It's us right here in scriptures. Have you... Jesus said to him, verse 29, Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those uniquely blessed. A special gift is going to be given to those who have not seen and yet have believed. There we are. We didn't get to see the risen Christ with our own eyes. And yet here we are expressing our faith and our belief. And there's a special blessing that rests powerfully on you because of the way that you're living by faith when you could not possibly have lived by sight because it's been 2,000 years ago. So it's me, it's you, and I don't for a moment believe that Jesus was shaming Thomas in this context. In fact, he was walking with a sincere man of faith and inviting him to enter in wholeheartedly. And it turns out faith and doubt go hand in hand. And I'm betting that all of us in the room have had doubts uh, in the room. (laughs) Right, have had doubts, right? We all stand at some point between life and death, don't we? On a spectrum of life, and compared to history, truly a speck on that spectrum, isn't it? But I want you to picture your life as as the fact that you're running one leg of a relay race, and you are currently somewhere in that relay race. Which leg? We don't even have any idea. Uh, And you have a degree of doubt about the outcome of this relay race. You, You maybe can't even see the finish line from here, but you've been told about it you have been told about the finish line and what that looks like, but you can't see it from here. Every runner, you're not alone. Every runner in this race, on this leg, is a doubter. And we wouldn't be human if we didn't have some doubts about where life is headed through and then out of 2020. Another lesson we've learned, we cannot have one without the other, faith and doubt. And sometimes we even doubt what we see, how much more that, what, that which we cannot see. That's the point Jesus is making. Honesty with our doubts makes our faith more honest. And Jesus, of course, and Paul, will amplify that throughout the scriptures. And there is no question but that we probably would be wise to at least doubt ourselves. We know ourselves too well, don't we? And if we're honest with ourselves, then along the way, even while we have certainty in the risen Savior, and that is firm because of his character and absolute perfect nature, still in ourselves there's doubt. So the king of his kingdom, this kingdom that he is building, has no limitations and not a single uh, matter in this world causes him to hesitate or question or second guess himself, all of which are such human conditions that we really struggle with that, don't we? Not to transfer those kinds of thoughts and notions onto God. And yet, there lies our security. He's enthroned, He knows, He's executing His work, He's completing His kingdom. And there's our assurance. So then, here it is Jesus chose us. The weak things of the world, if you don't believe me, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 through 3, go back and read them. He doesn't put up with our weaknesses or accomplish a few things in spite of our weaknesses. These three chapters tell us that he chose our weaknesses, which by the way makes all of you eminently qualified. (laughs) And I know that by looking at my own heart, for this kingdom work to accomplish his purposes. And so we stand in the moment of this this invitation that we might take our turn, and even the most frail among us get to take our turn because we've put our feet on this strong foundational belief in the risen Christ. So then that brings us to verse 30. Why is it vital that we take our turn? Jesus, it says in verse 30, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, And that by believing, you may have life in his name. There it is. Purpose for living, the purpose for Jesus coming, and living, and dying, and rising. It is clear so that all might believe. And that's why we take our turn. So that in believing, you may have life in his name. So Jeremy, my brother, my friend, I thank you again for trusting me to have these moments with all of you here. And I'm going to use you for a moment here again. Sorry. Um, Not sorry. Sorry. Um, as, as, as one of the body parts, right, under one head, Jesus, you are unique, and yet you are also common, right? And, it, and it's your turn, and you're taking your turn. And I, and I just want to say that I've watched you and observed you for literally decades now. It's crazy to think of that, that I have these relationships with certain people for a long-term period of time. Um, and so you've offered your unique gifts to this now segment of the, the vineyard, right, the people of God, and, 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 and you have done it with all of your heart and there really isn't a way to adequately appreciate you but but on the other hand there isn't a way to adequately appreciate the potential of the strength of this this larger group way beyond you and I just want to say that out loud so as you've walked this road in serenity to your father I, I for one am grateful that you have and you're confronting surprises and mysteries and you've tackled them in the integrity of your heart and you've attempted to live with authenticity in your life, and we've seen you as faithful, we've seen you as weak. We've seen all those things. You've demonstrated that to us. You've lived right out loud, right? Kind of fishbowl stuff, right? And we have, we, have, we have seen you believe, and we've seen you when God needed to help you in your unbelief. And, and so you have kind of walked in a way that, that we're all walking, certainly. And so thanks for that commitment to your own internal transformation, and keep living that in front of all of your brothers and sisters and fellow co-workers right here in the gospel. Keep, keep doing that. Um, and thanks for putting up with me as your district superintendent for these almost eight years. But now it's your turn, Concord Bible Church. Not now. I mean, it always has been. Since you came to faith, it was your turn. That's when it became your turn. Right? Not, not today. I'm not making a declaration here today. I'm making an observation. It's been your turn. It's always been your turn. And I want you to take your turn and be confident. Step up. Dream big. Dare to love. Dare to expect Jesus and his spirit to show up among you and then through you out into this place, this place you call home, the CBC home, but in conquered and beyond, right? Let's do that together. And all of us here are going to see this as our turn to walk with you as you walk with Jesus. He said peace be with you as the Father has sent me Jesus says so I am sending you. You saints it's just your turn with your gifts and if you withhold them then where would the body be? 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. So I wonder should we compare all the years of work bringing Conquer Bible Church to this point, and then compare them to some kind of a hope for imagined next 10 years? Should we try to think of what might God might do, the head of the body placing the gifts as he's, he's desired? What might he do? Our country is living through conditions that are indeed less than preferable, but what I want us to do is climb into the yoke alongside Jesus and do our work with joy and anticipation with peace, as purveyors of peace, as peacemakers. And we will ensure that the good and faithful work Jesus has begun will be completed among and through this locale way beyond in many languages for another season. So I want you to bow your heads with me if you would for a minute and contemplate who you are in Christ. The great work that he has done. It's our turn and we take our turn so that all might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, we would have life in his name. Your friends would have life in his name. Your family members would have life in his name. So as you you get serious in your thought process here, where have you been sent? Contemplate that. Where are you already? Who are those people that are there with you? Those are the ones to whom you have been sent. And Father, I pray that you would enable us to fall in love with those people who are on our pathway, those people that we live and work and play with. I pray, Father, that we would go fully equipped with the assurance of the power of the risen Christ and that because of those realities, the goodness of of those powerful, powerful truths and realities of our risen life in the risen Christ, of our death to sin because we died with him on that cross, that, Father, you would now take us to see ourselves as sent ones, even in this season, especially in this weird season of life. We love you, but that's only because you first loved us. So I ask for your blessing upon this group of your people. And I ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.